0: I'm sitting in the late afternoon sun next to a wide mud hole in the middle of a rough and uninviting forest road at the bottom of a rugged valley we in the North American Wood Ape Conservancy call X. Today this mud hole is looking, well, it's looking more like a pond because it's full of several days of rain, but I've never seen it completely dry. During periods of exceptional drought, the edges may crack with desiccation, but even then, fed by this nearby spring, it stays dark with moisture. I've also seen it a torrent of surging water during periods of near-monsoon weather. Most days, though, it's, it's just a mud hole. Like it was one day in 2000 when Alton Higgins happened across it and found something extraordinary. Alton was looking for ape habitat, and using his background as a wildlife biologist and some common sense, he did what naturalists and explorers have done since, well, forever, I guess. He put himself in what he thought was a likely place, and he talked to the locals. In that way, he came upon what would turn out to be a veritable wood-ape Shangri-La. What he found back in 2000 specifically was a series of tracks. Four 16-inch tracks lined up in the mud. Those tracks were the first on a path that leads to me, in this moment, next to this muddy spot in the road, talking to you. I'm Brian Brown of the North American Wood-Ape Conservancy, and on this episode of our podcast, you'll hear about a week I spent in Area X with my co-host, Brandon Lentz, and two other members of the NAWAC. You'll hear about a week that was both extraordinary, punctuated with adventure and moments of thrill, but also mundane. Mundane in a way that, like so many other weeks spent here by so many other teams, demonstrates why this place is so special. The place Alton Higgins found because he bothered to look. The place into which our organization has invested uncounted thousands of dollars in man hours over nearly 20 years in what I believe is the single most extensive and sustained field study into the animal commonly referred to as Bigfoot. Just one more week, and four more men in a long line of both, hoping to change the natural world as we know it. This is the official podcast of the North American Woody Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Apes Among Us. I'm Matt Pruitt, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Brandon Linz. Brandon was the leader of this particular team that you're going to be hearing about, and he's calling me now from the frozen steps of Minnesota. So how are you doing there tonight, Brandon?
2: Wonderful, Matt. I'm really excited to share some of the stories and experiences that November team had experienced down in Area X. We were there in middle to end of September of this year, so we are two months removed from that week-long stay in the valley. And since then, I've had some time to sit back and reflect on the week that we had. And I can really only sum it up in saying that it was incredible. And I can't wait for the listeners here to hear what happened.
1: I was actually traveling during that week. I was in the Pacific Northwest and... I was getting updates from Brian because uh, Brian's cell carrier provided him service down there at our base camp. So he was able to give me updates in real time and reading those was really exciting. So I kind of had my phone in my hand at all times just waiting for the next update, especially when things were heating up. And I know there were certain times when you guys were, you know, you'd put in so many miles of hiking day after day and in terrible rainstorms. And I think you can tell that there's some serious hard work. You guys definitely put in something like 40 miles
2: Yeah, I think our total miles that we had logged on foot at the end of the week was 38. And that is in a steep, rough, rocky, horrible terrain to walk in in the first place. So we definitely put all of our collective energy into hopefully collecting a specimen that week.
1: Well, it definitely comes through listening to these files as we're preparing them for this episode that you can hear that not only do you have very dedicated investigators there putting in a lot of hard work, but I can also hear that there's some legitimate camaraderie happening there. And, and, you know, there's that fun element that provides a lot of fuel for that hard work as well. So I'm sure that was a big bonus too.
2: absolutely those guys that I was there with during that week, David Herring, Rich and Brian Brown, we all comprised November team. We hadn't seen each other in over a year, and that happens a lot in the NAWAC is that you don't really see your friends within the organization until you take the field together, and a lot of times it's only one time per year. So those guys I hadn't seen in at least a year, and you can really tell that that energy translated into what we recorded and what we are sharing here.
1: Among a lot of the other activity that you guys experienced, listeners are also going to hear about a couple of visuals that happened in the Valley that week, correct?
2: Two visuals, we heard several vocalizations, there were a couple of tree falls, some other crazy things happened that only seemed to happen in Area X, and you'll be hearing all about that.
1: Excellent. Well, I know the listeners are going to be excited to dive right into that. So, let's lead them into the episode here. But before we get into that week in Area X, we're going to start out a little bit with some backstory about how this group got started in this particular valley. So, for this next segment, you're going to be hearing from Director Emeritus of the NAWAC, Alton Higgins. <laughs> Our next guest is Director Emeritus of the NAWAC, Alton Higgins. Alton's voice might be familiar to our listeners, but the story behind the discovery of Area X might not be. As Brian explained in the intro to this episode, Alton is central to that discovery. Alton was a longtime wildlife biologist for the state of Arizona and has logged countless hours in the field conducting bird censuses and many other biology projects. He also taught biology at the college level for a number of years before retiring just a few years ago. These days, Alton splits his time between helping to raise grandchildren, playing clarinet in his church orchestra, and working to validate the existence of the wood ape in the Ouachita Mountains. Alton, if you would, please tell our listeners about the events that led to the group's work here in Area X.
3: Okay, um, good talking to you, Matt. I have to go back to um, summer of 1998. We had a family living in Washington State, so we took the family on vacation, and on our last full day, we were with my cousin in Battleground. He and I decided that we wanted to go look at an area where some of the people in his church had, had recommended that he look at for, for elk sign to go elk hunting. We were on some Forest Service road somewhere between Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams. a Beautiful, beautiful area. We stopped at this large meadow. And in the course of uh, our wandering around in there, we found a trackway and three large piles of scat. The scat were very fresh, but they didn't have a strong odor. They appeared to be composed entirely of finely chewed green vegetation. And so when we got home to Oklahoma City, I did my first uh, internet search. And I think I just put in Bigfoot, found the BFRO. So I submitted a write-up to the BFRO. And sometime in 1999, the BFRO contacted me about looking into a submission from Oklahoma. So I told them I would and determined that the folks involved were likely telling the truth, but that they probably heard owls. So I wrote it up, and I figured they would be disappointed with my evaluation. But to my surprise, that wasn't the case at all. I became quite involved. And gaining access to the database where sighting reports are compiled and organized, assigned, published, really opened my eyes regarding the significance of the Ouachita Mountains and the four-state region of southeastern Oklahoma, East Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. I went to a map store here in Oklahoma City. I doubt that such places exist any longer with the advent of e-commerce. But I went to this map store and I purchased some USGS topographic maps of southeast Oklahoma. And I began studying them, looking at places where supposed sightings had occurred, trying to evaluate the landscape, looking at the roads. I was thinking, okay, if an ape was seen there, where might it have come from? So I spent time, you know, looking at these maps and and I made arrangements with David Wilbanks. He was a BFRO guy. He lived in Ada. And Labor Day weekend, 2000, September 1st to 4th. That was a Friday to Monday. I guess I took the day off from work on that Friday. And uh, I met up with David at his music store there in Ada. And we took off in his truck for the mountains. Every little place that we saw that, that uh, we thought, well, maybe there could be some tracks there. I mean, every little pond we saw, we made, I don't know how many stops we made looking for tracks. And David was this like super outgoing guy. And every place we stopped to get gas or go into a little store or whatever, every place we went that whole weekend, Dave would go in and say, I'm a Bigfoot hunter. Anybody here seen a Bigfoot (laughs) or anybody here know the Bigfoot story? (laughs) Uh, It was was kind of embarrassing, actually. (laughs) Amazingly enough, I don't think we found a single place that someone didn't say that they had seen one or knew someone that had seen one. So anyway, we pretty quickly figured out, found out, discovered that uh, our maps were like way out of sync with what we were seeing, and we got lost. And so I don't know, it was probably 3:30 or so finally. I mean, I was just toast and I had to sleep. So I got out of the truck and I literally slept in the road in front of The truck, David stayed in the truck. I don't know if he stayed asleep, if he slept at all, because uh, every little bit he'd turn on the headlights, you know, checking to see if there was a wood ape, you know, looking at me sleeping in the road. (laughs) Anyway, so the next morning, uh, Saturday morning, I guess, we um, were driving and we found ourselves in Honuppy. And there was a little store there, and in the back was kind of a little grill thing and we ate some food and by another one of those little miracles we ran into a guy named harold with the forest service and uh, of course david you know asked him about bigfoot and and it turned out that harold uh, lived there in honubi or close to honubi we did the whole classic scene that you having all these documentaries where everybody's crowded around the hood of a truck and maps are spread out and, and you're looking at them. So that's what I was doing with my topographic maps. And I was asking him, can you tell me how to get here? He was getting frustrated because like I said, the maps were just way, way out of date. There've been lots of logging roads put in since then. And so it was starting to get a little frustrating. And I said to Harold, I said, okay, if it was up to you, where would you go? Harold made cabins and he had a sawmill on his property. He said that he'd had the animals on his property. He thought that maybe the logs going through his his, uh, sawmill, the loud screeching noise attracted him. That was just, you know, his his thoughts. And he said, the problem is, I can't tell you how to get there. He said, you need someone to take you there. So he hooked us up with a guy named Randall, and and, uh, we went over and visited with Randall. And David was really into martial arts kind of stuff. So he was doing all kinds of cool things with the kids. And I'm talking to to Randall and his wife, and and he agreed to take us there. So we spent the night there in Hoonubbie, the next day Randall met up with us, and uh, we took off to uh, this place that Harold had told us about. Again, we're stopping every place, looking for tracks and things. We made it down there to these cabins. It was pretty late, I would guess, after midnight, and we heard this big commotion, this big racket coming from from the easternmost cabin and we thought the place was being torn up and then we could kind of hear something there's like a little path we couldn't observe the path from where we were sitting but we could kind of hear something making its way to um, the southernmost cabin which was basically in front of where we were but you couldn't see it and again a bunch of racket and then the thing made its way off to the west Well, the next morning we got up, we we went over to to look at these places, expecting to find a big mess, but they looked undisturbed, and that really confused us. On our way out, we stopped and saw this dried mud hole, and there was a a little accumulation of of leaves. And I was drawn to it, and I pulled out the leaves, and, and there was a deep impression in this dried mud of just a beautiful track and it was actually randall that discovered that it was a track way there were bear tracks there too uh, apparently a mother bear because it was large tracks with little tracks but um, provided a nice you know comparison oh well, man that that just served to seal the deal as far as i was concerned so this was um, i guess this was monday now and I had to teach on Tuesday, so we had a long ways to go. We stopped at uh, Broken Bow. There was a, a guy there named Dr. Lewis Stiles. Dr. Stiles was a member of the Oklahoma Wildlife Commission, and he had corresponded with Roger Patterson. He was super interested in the whole Bigfoot phenomenon, and that's what got David interested in it, was Dr. Stiles. And he was 69 years old when we visited with him. He died just last year, actually. We spent a long time there, and I was really anxious to get going, even though it was cool meeting Dr. Stiles. But you can imagine driving from Broken Bow to Ada, and then I had to go from Ada to to the city to work the next day. But that had me really super psyched about going back to that place. Two weeks later, the BFRO conducted their Skookum expedition, which was in Skamania County, not far from where Lynn and I had found the scat piles and, and the trackway. They had told us when we reported this whole thing that, that that was an area of extreme interest to them and that they were going to follow up on what we found the trackway and the scats and all that. So anyway, the following spring, Roger Roberts, Brett Elliott, and I went to uh, Honubi to visit with his family regarding their experiences. We got there pretty early before you know we said that we'd meet with them. So we pulled under this big shade tree just off the highway to wait for the time to to meet with them. And as we waited, this pickup pulled up and stopped a short distance from where we were standing. And this big old guy got out and strode towards us. We exchanged howdy's and I was thinking that he was going to get after us for trespassing, but he was friendly. Before he even came to a stop, he asked, are you all Bigfoot hunters? We were stunned. (laughs) we hesitantly replied yes and his demeanor changed and he introduced himself we had just crossed paths with the reverend riley donica i'm not really sure if donica is how you say his last name it was spelled d-o-n-i-c-a anyway pastor donica was 67 when we met him i later found out that he was known as the mountain man preacher Uh, He was an interesting guy, though. He told us, he said, I have ridden on horseback all through these mountains. I've never seen a Bigfoot. He said, just about the time I decide there's probably nothing to it, then somebody I trust tells me that they saw one. And I start all over again. Well, Pastor Donica told us one story from his childhood that I found to be particularly interesting. He said that uh, an elderly Choctaw woman was his uh, caretaker when he was, when he was little. In their time together, he said that uh, one of the things he remembered doing was asking her about the names for things in her language. You know, he'd say, How do you say bird? and da." And she'd tell him, Hushi. Anyway, one day he asked her about the word Kayamichi. And he said that she told him that Kayamichi was not one of their words, she didn't know where it came from. But she said that when she was a child, the tribal elders told her that they understood that the word had something to do with fearsome giants that lived in the upper region of the Kaimichi River. So that little story stuck with that mountain man preacher for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. You know, if you if you kind of add up that timeline, an you know, old man relating something told to him when he was a child and this old woman, you know, replying with something that was told to her when she was little by The elders relating something. I mean, you're going back close to a couple of centuries. Anyway, we did meet up with the family. We received permission to stage operations from their property. So that following September, October 2001, we conducted the first large-scale investigation, which lasted, I think it lasted six days. We returned in 2002 with another pretty large effort, which included um, several retired research field biologists. One of them was a guy named Ron. He discovered some big handprints on my truck. And those prints, along with some others discovered during this general time frame, formed the basis for an article that I wrote about handprints, which can be found on our NAWAC website. So so to wrap this up, in 2003, I was invited to speak at the uh, International Bigfoot Symposium in Willow Creek. And Dr. Bendernagel recommended that I give my presentation at the upcoming texas bigfoot conference and that's where i first met and eventually joined forces with some of the folks affiliated with the uh, tbrc 2005 i focused then exclusively with helping the tbrc and its transformation into the nawac along of course with notables like daryl collier and brian brown and many others and the focus on long-term field studies began then in earnest in 2006 with operation forest vigil and we've been at it ever since
1: i can only imagine what that must have felt like to actually see that track in the ground and to move from following a hypothesis and trying to study what seems to be viable habitat to then having that direct confirmation that not only are these things real and that they're here but that there was one at least one right there in that spot not very long ago do you recall what that felt like
3: oh yeah it was uh well, like I said earlier, it kind of sealed the deal for me. But I mean, I mean, I'd seen a track way before, you know, in Washington, and this looked very similar. But still, when I was younger, you know, I'd I'd seen the Boggy Creek movie, and but I didn't relate that really to Bigfoot in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And even though I'd I'd seen all these reports, it was it was still different to see something for yourself. I don't. I don't know how to how to really re- relate the the shock. You know, you pull out the things, and there it is, and it's just like, holy cow! I'm sorry, I I can't really describe it. You know, you just it just slaps you in the face, and you just know you have to follow up on it. You have to go back.
1: And I guess for the listeners too, I don't know if we touched on how large that track was, or or what the track measured at, or the the step length, stride
3: length. Those tracks were about 16 inches they were they were quite large really about the same size as, as the as the track that was uh observed in uh washington the stride was uh i think it was 54 inches but the one i discovered was a left then the right then a left and the left one the animal had had stumbled there was kind of a hump you know how sometimes humps form in, in roads and um you know, from tracks going over the same place over and over and over, and you're left with kind of a high spot in the middle. And the uh, the left foot, the third step, had uh, stumbled on this hump in the middle. And so that fourth step, the right foot, when it came down, was much farther away as the animal, you know, apparently lurched forward some and, and its right foot registered. And I I'm thinking that was like, 84 inches, way beyond what we were capable of of reproducing. I was completely convinced of the reality of the of the tracks, because again, had been made and they'd been made in mud, and if someone had manufactured the tracks, there would have been evidence of their activity in the mud, and there was nothing. It was just you know smooth mud with these with these tracks, the bear tracks and and the wood ape tracks, and you know, I was absolutely positive that they couldn't have been hoaxed by a person because I didn't think anybody could step that far in the first place, much less hoax them without leaving, you know, evidence of their hoax and activities. It was just a, a stunning, stunning event. It was it was a life changing thing. And it just didn't affect my life because, you know, I I convinced others, hey, we, we have to get back to this place. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, it's it's changed a lot of people's lives as they've as they've returned there, and you know, tracks. We haven't found lots and lots of tracks. the The area is just super rocky, but we have found some other tracks and found lots of other forms of evidence, like I mentioned, with handprints and vocalization recordings and what have you. But it's uh, it's a special area.
1: It's so serendipitous. I mean, I, I hope our listeners understand. The fact that we have as many tracks, and I mean we researchers going back to the 50s, let's say, the fact that we do have the tracks that are available is pretty astounding. I think Jeff Meldrum has around 300 in his collection. And there's so many factors that contribute to that in terms of, you know, first of all, the animal has to walk through the kind of substrate that will retain that impression. And then someone has to find that before natural processes affect it, be that rain or some other water action, the rising of a creek that deposits water and flows water onto the the roadway there. So it's so serendipitous that those were found. And, you know, finding tracks in Area X is fairly rare just due to the nature of the ground and the substrate. There's not a lot of surfaces that will retain impressions very well. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a, a very serendipitous event that changed a whole lot of people's lives. And so... You know, how fortuitous and how fortunate that it all happened.
3: Was it Rene DeHinden that said something is making those damn tracks something to that effect? They're not um, spontaneously generated. You know, something, something is leaving the tracks. And they're not all hoaxed. They're not all misinterpretations. Well, again, it's definitely
1: changed a lot of people's lives. And I know it's changed the trajectory of this subject and the perception of the subject for the public in general. So we're all very grateful for that. And you were putting in the good, hard work of being down there and looking around. And again, a very serendipitous encounter with that sign led to all of this. So We're all very grateful.
3: Well, luck and effort are correlated with each other. <laughs> Lucky people are the people that are out there spending a lot of time doing something
1: certainly there's a to paraphrase an axiom it's something like uh opportunity dances but only with those who are already on the dance floor
3: <laughs> that's the truth yeah we've put in we've put in our time i've spent months literally months over the last uh, you know, decade or so down there and you know it's a an exciting place sometimes you go days and days without anything happening and other times you know it's just crazy but uh, you know we've come close and you know we just have to keep after it
0: It's Sunday about 9:20 in the morning and we're walking down one of the forest roads here in the valley that we call X on our way to investigate an interesting thing that one of our members found, a guy named Blake, looking at some satellite imagery on Google Earth, actually, discovered a strange black, I mean, gorilla-shaped, to be honest, uh, blob, and interestingly, it wasn't there in other photos taken at other times. Now, if you're like me, and you've been looking at satellite photos of this place for, gosh, more than 10 years, back in the day, they were really nothing more than sort of dark green shaving cream. You couldn't see any kind of detail whatsoever. You couldn't see anything. You just knew it was trees. But now, you can see individual trees. You can see deadfall. You can see boulders. The level of resolution is becoming quite impressive actually so it does seem logical that someone might be able to look at a satellite photo of this area and potentially see an ape and uh it's entirely possible that's what blake did the imagery that he's looking at was taken in the winter so there's no foliage it's just the trees with no leaves on them no sort of underbrush and this particular shadow, whatever it is, uh, is in a little bit of a clearing. But if you look at it, yeah, you can sort of talk yourself into believing that what you're looking at is what looks like the back of a gorilla. So this morning's mission is to go over to where that photo, uh, go over to the place on the ground where that image, that image was showing and, and see what's there. Is there a Is there a big rock? Is there a deadfall? Is there a snag? That could have tricked us into thinking that it was an ape. So, anyway, that's today's adventure. So we're at the area now uh, indicated by GPS where this shadow, this vaguely ape-shaped shadow should should be. So uh, we should see if it's not an ape. Uh, and since the image doesn't show the ape-shaped shadow, the ash, A-S-H, <laughs> uh, we should see uh, a big deadfall or uh, something that would appear to be very dark and black almost, Almost, uh, almost a shine to it. We should see it here. We should see something. And I think the most likely candidate would either be a deadfall or some kind of branch snag. And as I'm standing in this area, I don't see anything. I don't see anything like that. We're very close to the homestead. We're, gosh, we're within 50 feet of this area we call the homestead, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, uh, I just don't know what to make of it. I don't see anything here um, that fits the bill of what we saw on the on the satellite image. And we're here, sort of the last quarter of September. The leaves are starting to turn and fall. They're actually seeing pretty well into the understory, so I can actually get better visibility for a longer range now than 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 typical uh, down here in the summer. Uh, there's just nothing there's nothing here and so as hard as it may be to believe uh, i i think that that satellite image is showing something that was transiting it was it was moving through the area and now i suppose it could have been a bear very large very large bear if that's the case using the tools in google maps we've got this thing pegged at around eight feet long, uh, appearing in, in the image. Difficult to know exactly because there's angle of, you know, how the image was taken and that sort of thing. So that's an estimate, but, uh, it would be quite a large bear in the middle of winter when you would not expect them to be up and about. Uh, the bears here do hibernate in the, in the winter. So I was very skeptical of that image when I first saw it. My assumption was it was deadfall. But I am standing here now and I see nothing that makes sense. Nothing that would be, would be that black shadowy thing. So, uh, I'm going to chalk that up as minimally super interesting, potentially really cool. walking around this area we call the homestead and we call it the homestead because it's obviously it was a homestead someone lived here Uh, if you spend enough time down here in the valley over the years you're gonna find a couple of these and I've been and seen at least three of them and at this point in time I mean these are these are old Uh, typically what you find is outlines of a foundation uh, of a cabin You might find some trash, some broken crockery, some bottles, some rusting out tin cans, uh, like some sort of sign like that of of human habitation. And this is how they're different than cabins, is that people were living down here. In the case of of the the homestead, as we call it, this one, uh, it was a woman living here by herself for quite a long time. And uh, like most of the people who were down here, she she was squatting, it it turns out, uh, which is why we believe she left or was removed. Uh, what's really interesting about this particular homestead is that it was pretty well developed. There, there are signs here that that she had cleared areas. There are lemon trees growing here um, that uh this is the only place in the valley you're going to find these. Uh, there's other signs of of agriculture, you know, uh, like she's growing crops in this area, not a big operation, not a farm by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but also walls. Uh, there's there's the, the remains of what may have been an incinerator uh, not too far from, from where her cabin was. Uh, so this is, this is a really interesting place for us. And we've been here, oh, many times over the years. And this is an interesting place. And I often think when I come here, I try to imagine what it's like being a sole female living in this valley alone day after day, going into town very irregularly. The, the things that we've heard is that she would go in once a month to twice a month just to pick up supplies, bring them back down in here. Just trying to imagine her getting in here and what what kind of vehicle she must have had. But then living here by herself. She had some dogs. Uh, apparently she had some some pets. But man, what an existence out here, basically just in the wilderness area by herself. is really something I wish I could go back in time and ask her uh, what she was experiencing because this is very close to sort of the what we think of as ground zero of ape activity in this area. Yeah, it's really something. It's pretty cool. It's Friday, the 27th of September. It's uh, the end of a week that the four of us have spent here in Area X, a week that is in some ways really amazing, but other ways kind of normal for this place. Uh how would you how would you summarize Brandon uh the week's events and and give us a little bit of color on on how it started for for you and Rich like almost right after we got here.
2: Well, we had been here for roughly an hour or so last Saturday, so that was 6 days ago now. And I decided to just take a walk down one of the walking paths from our base camp and Rich here tagged along with me and Within minutes of our walk, we heard from the distance what sounded like an old man yelling or just like a person yelling in the woods. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) That was quite loud. Yeah. So we heard that and immediately following that, we heard a pack of coyotes that were going off. They were screaming, ridiculously agitated. And I thought that was compelling. Yeah, we heard that back here. David,
0: Dave, and I were, were back here at camping, and, and we heard that. And I was like, "That was weird." But then the coyotes kicked in. You were way closer, so you heard it way better. But yeah, that was that was an odd vocalization.
2: Yeah, it, very bizarre.
0: Rich, you you were probably still jet lagged, but uh, what what are you thinking at this point? Like, you just got here, and you're hearing these crazy things.
4: Yeah, I was stumbling stumbling down the path, to be honest. Um, and then I heard that sound. <sighs> So we both looked at each other in shock for a little while, and both one of the things we said this week is you always say, "Did you hear that?" And it was, "Did you hear that?"
0: Yeah. I uh, think the the slogan for for area x is what did that sound like to you <laughs> uh, yeah, and, they, and everyone points in four different directions right <laughs> exactly uh anyway, um so
2: anyway you you hear this crazy, crazy vocal like you're how far away are you from camp at this point? hundred yards at best, okay. yeah, so not very far at all. So we continued on down the path towards those vocalizations that we had just heard. And minutes later, both Rich and I heard a classic wood knock from on top of the mountain. Mm. And Rich was behind me at the time. And I looked back at him and pointed up in the direction where he heard the wood knock from. And he had confirmed that he heard it too. Mm -hmm. So we stopped for a minute and listened and didn't hear anything else. So we continued on down the path. And maybe three, four minutes later from very, very close range... Both Rich and I heard what sounded like a classic monkey sound, like <laughs> from—I would put it at 25 yards away. Yeah, and that raised the hair on my arms.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a sound that we've heard so many times in here now. That sort of—it's sort—it's low too. It's—it's it's not like they're trying to display. It's almost like, uh, well, who was it? Somebody thought maybe it was an involuntary type thing.
4: Yeah. yeah. It was almost like it was a surprise. Right. We'd, we'd walked and walked upon this animal that wasn't expecting us. And it was, ooh,
0: ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Which was just, you know, I might make a sound very similar to that. Um, but it was, uh, if I recall correctly, it was starting to get pretty dark.
2: Yes. The visibility was starting to degrade quite a bit. It was late in the evening. So we continued on down the path after we heard that vocalization and we heard one more wood knock, this time from a different direction. And after that, it had been getting dark, as you had mentioned. So we turned around and came back to camp and we were gone for maybe half an hour at best. And in that half an hour, we recorded four notable ape events. And this was our first night here. So that was a very good start to the week.
0: We do have automated, uh, audio recorders out in the field again this year. And so since we could hear it at camp and you guys heard it very well down the road, I have high hopes that when we pull that ARU out, that's over sort of in that general area, um, that we'll, that we'll get that vocalization. That would be great. So the next day we went and investigated the, that sort of apish looking dark figure that, uh, that Blake found on the, on Google Earth. Um we've already done a segment on that there wasn't anything physically there that would have accounted for it what what do you guys think what 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 do you think about when you think about the fact that there's this figure that is sort of vaguely or not so vaguely shaped like an ape and there's nothing physically sitting there that can explain that what are your what are your thoughts
2: I'm now convinced that we have an image of a wood ape um you know we have seen apes in that area before We've heard apes. You and I have seen two apes very, very close to that area. Very, very close. Rich and I found a track right in that same vicinity that looked like it was produced by a wood ape. So logically, you take all those things into account and all signs point to wood ape. Mm -hmm. So we basically deduced everything that we could and still were left with this image that looks like a wood ape.
0: Dave, you're a resident skeptic. What do
5: you think? Well, I think there's something in that image from twenty fifteen, I believe. Right. And it's not there in twenty twelve we've looked at, and mm-hmm. it's not there since that. So so it's missing. This this object has gone somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's what I know for sure. I know we scoured that whole area, we looked at all the clearings that, that matched it. There were you know, there were no stumps. It'd have to be a big stump. Um, there were no rock formations that, that matched that, certainly not black ones. Mm-hmm. And it looks an awful lot like a gorilla from the back. <laughs> it does. Uh, <laughs> captain? <laughs> You've demoted me. <laughs>
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought
4: you were a captain. Uh, well, former captain. <laughs> um, the head shape on that, on whatever it is, um, I think points towards an ape. Yeah. yeah. I, it's I don't think, yeah it's, yeah, it's conical head shape. And I don't think it's a hunter. Hunters wouldn't wear black. Right. Uh, and there's no sign of any protruding weapon.
0: Right. Unless I mean, It's the only thing that, you know, in... In retrospect, uh, oh, there's a deer right over there. Hey, yeah. hey deer. Um, yep. Hi, we're waving at you. Oh, there's two of them. Uh, in, in, re- you know, thinking about it, you know, maybe a guy dressed all in black would look like that because it looks like it's a upright figure, but that doesn't make any sense either.
4: Not at all. No, no, that, that look to me. looks like an ape. Yeah. Um, I'd like to believe it. it's an ape and I think it is to yeah. be honest.
0: So later that day we tried, uh, there's, there's the, the sort of old, um, overgrown ATV trail that we, that we have in your camp. Uh, we, we did what we call a leapfrog maneuver. Uh, we were going to basically drop you off in a stationary spot to hunt. And then we were going to basically be bait and kind of like walk back and forth in front of you. Um, and the idea was that we would drop you off and then come back. From further down the trail, something really interesting happened. So uh, I'll say what happened on our side, and then you say what happened on your side. So we drop you off, and and this is something that we think we 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 have reason to believe that um, the apes in this valley. uh, First of all, I believe a lot of us believe that they observe us quite a bit, and and when we go out on these sort of excursions, that they want to keep track of our. Uh, our location and and might actually follow us but when we break up in groups they're maybe not so good at counting and we seem to have been able to confuse them sometimes and get them we've actually have quite a few uh visual sightings of apes that have occurred because teams have split up and started to do some strange things and 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 the apes don't seem to be able to keep track of us very well so we were hoping that something like that would happen and you being stationary with your rifle would be able to collect a specimen so we drop you off as we planned, and then we keep going down the road. We go much further than, than we'd originally talked about when we sat down with you and, and came up with this plan. We were, I mean, we had to be half a kilometer from you, if not more. Uh, we hung out a little bit, then we came back and did the thing. Uh, what happened while we were gone?
2: Well, we have walkie-talkies here in camp, so we can stay within communication of each other. And I was posted to the south and i had my back up against the tree and i had my radio on the west side of the tree and i had been sitting there for maybe half an hour 45 minutes or so and i heard what i swore was you talking into the radio and i sat there for a minute and wondered why you would talk into the radio like 45 minutes after you had left.
0: Yeah. First of all, when, when there are guys like you who are in those positions, you don't talk on the radio because you don't want to blow their cover. Right. You don't want anyone right. to know they're there. So you want to be
2: quiet. You don't get on the radio unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Right. That's right. And I sat there for a minute and thought, was that Brian? Because it sounded like you. It sounded like you talking into the radio. But I couldn't exactly make out the words that you were saying. So I sat there and my brain was trying to like put together the sentence that I had just heard. And I came up with, okay, we're leaving now. And it sounded like you talking into the radio saying, okay, we're leaving now, but saying it sort of softly and subtly. And last night, I came to the realization that I didn't hear the sounds of keying in mm-hmm. on the walkie-talkies. So you didn't talk into the radio at all. And you were nowhere near me at the time. Right.
0: There's no way you could have overheard me say anything because we were so far away from you. And I clearly didn't talk into the radio. Did I talk in the radio, to you guys? No, I didn't talk in the radio. Um... Uh, th- that story has sort of two levels of interest for me. Like, wh- first of all, like faux speech is super cool. You know, when you hear it, it's really, really interesting. But the fact that you thought it was me is like super creepy. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know how to process that, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't me. Um, Rich, when when we were down the road to the west from from Brennan's location where you heard uh, apparently me <laughs> saying something I didn't say,
4: uh, you had a similar experience. Yeah, there were three exciting things. One, I was taking points. I haven't taken point in a long time. <laughs> um, so I was taking point. I was walking down the track. There's noise behind me. Um, firstly, I, I thought as I heard a, a whoop and talked told, told to you guys, said, I think I've heard a whoop. You neither, neither of you had heard it. And within about five minutes, I stopped again and said, I can hear voices, and I can hear voices over there. Neither of you heard it. Uh, but what makes it bizarre is 10 minutes before Brandon heard his voice, Yeah, I I had the same thing.
0: Yeah, David and I were actually talking to each other. We weren't trying to be especially stealthy on the trail. It wasn't our job. Our job was to be obvious, and it was Brandon's job to be stealthy. So David and I were just talking, you know, and being normal and walking and not paying really attention. Um, Rich, somewhat ahead of us, and, you know, being, as he said, point, um, heard these things that that we didn't hear. Super interesting. And then uh, on the way back, Rich, we were... um, we'd pass Brandon and then you and I had an interesting experience.
4: Yeah, that was, that was bizarre. So I'd heard movement. If I heard a wood knock first, a light wood knock and then movement, I called you over. Um, and then typically for about five minutes, nothing happened. Um, I sort of thing. Hey, Brian thinks I'm mad. I'm just inventing <laughs> things. But then we had movement in the place. I initially heard that movement. And, yeah. um, Within a few seconds, we heard Brandon coming back along the track. Yeah. He was bipedal, something walking down the track, just round the corner from where we were. But at that point, Brandon came up on the radio and asked where we were. Right. And
0: yeah. uh, he, he, Brandon, Brandon asked us where we were, and I had told him initially that we were to his east because this valley confuses me, and I always get east and west confused. And then uh, Rich corrected me, so I radioed to Brandon. No, 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 sorry, we're to the West. Um, and uh, he didn't call back. Turns out he had not heard that. Um, but yeah, we're standing there, and we're listening intently. We're trying to listen because there's just enough movement across the creek and the wood knock, and it's super interesting, and I'm really trying to hear. And then I hear <laughs> Brandon coming down the trail so obviously, and it's annoying to me because he's making so much noise I can't hear
2: very well across the creek. And then Brandon, where are you? (laughs) You radio to us. Yeah, I was actually west of your position at this point. You're still getting the directions mixed up. I'm still getting it mixed up. Uh, (laughs) This is all part of OPSEC, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so I was to the west of you, and I had walked for 300 yards. And when I radioed you telling you that I was leaving my position and I wanted to meet you, you said, okay, you'll you'll run into us fairly quickly. So I thought, okay, great. Just passed you. Yeah, so I walked to the west, and I walked for 5, 10 minutes, and you're nowhere to be seen. So I radio back to you. Are you sure you're to the west of me? And, and, and like, no, no, I told you we're to the east.
0: And I just said, no, we're to the east. And then I look at Rich like, what? <laughs> no, it's not that was Brandon who was about to come around the corner. Uh, really, really interesting. It's one of those like, that's happened to me a few times in here where you hear someone who you think is one of your guys walking down the trail. But he never shows up, you know. He never
4: materializes. That was very, very strange. In retrospect, we should have followed the sound. We should have. But we just both looked at each other then yeah. aghast,
0: just dumbfounded. Yeah, we absolutely should have. I mean, in in retrospect, you do all these things. I we should have immediately gone in your direction and tried to find out, find to find out what was making that sound. Uh, David, while this was happening, you were a bit further down the trail from us, and
5: you heard a weird vocalization. Yeah, you and Rich had stopped when when Rich heard heard motion and, and some movement. So I continued east back towards camp and i was probably 60 yards ahead of you guys and as i was walking i heard a noise from from the south up up the hill a bit and it was the best i can describe it it was it was it reminded me of the old yahoo commercial Uh yahoo and it, it wasn't enunciated like that it was very staccato and uh but it had that pitch Right. and so i don't know that it actually said yahoo but it was uh oh right but it had that the the pitch of the old yahoo commercial and so that's immediately what came to my head right. and so i just stopped right there and then waited for you guys to to did come you to, to you come started, did you, yeah i asked of you guys right. yeah yeah that's right i made note of the time and because i wanted to make sure it wasn't one of you guys because i wasn't sure brandon had come down yet you know he right. could have right. still been right. been up the mountain at that point for for all i knew
0: as interesting as all that is, it's 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 kind of just another afternoon in Area X. You know, that's the kind of thing that, that happens here on a fairly regular basis.
2: Yeah. I think all of those events sort of illustrate the importance of taking notes and writing down the exact times of every single thing that you do because... Invariably, when we all get back together, we're all going to have something to share. Right. And usually those somethings to share aren't things that we produced or noises that we made. And it always turns out to be something else. And that's when we come to the realization that, oh, that was none of us. Right. So it must have been possibly a wood ape.
0: It, and it's, I, the notes is really important because I think that you become numb to uh, anything, anything that you experience a lot of and and the kinds of things we're talking about here, hearing faux speech, hearing bipedal unexplained motion, hearing strange vocalizations. Uh, those are things that happen here all the time. And if you don't write them down and you're here enough, you sort of just sort of like shuffle them back in the back of your brain. And then when somebody asks you, so what happened? You're like, well, you know, nothing much. But it, I mean, even as we're having this conversation, we're having to refer to our notes to to refresh our memories that what we thought on what was that? Sunday?
5: No, Sunday. Sunday. We thought
0: that we thought that was really cool, and here we are on Friday. We've completely forgotten about it. <laughs> it
5: just completely <laughs> left
0: our head. The next day was Monday, and uh, Monday started out rainy. Uh, there was quite a bit of rain this week, relatively speaking, uh, more than more than I'm used to, anyway. And uh, that, that early that day, we decided to go for a hike. We decided to go over to an area that we call Blue One, and. And just sort of get out and and hopefully circulate and, and draw some some wood apes into us. But it wasn't very much fun, was it?
2: No, it wasn't much fun at all. We had been prepping for this hike for at least half an hour, getting ready to go. And literally the moment we step foot to go to this area, it started raining and it rained the entire time we were gone. Right.
0: <laughs> we were we were soaked to the bone, and there' a saying in the group not a saying that we coined, but embrace the suck. We were embracing that suck pretty hard.
2: Yeah, we had fully fully embraced all of the suck <laughs> that we could handle. <laughs> so we, we get back
0: to camp, um, oh, almost around noon, I think, and we decided to, even though it was it was just Monday, we decided to go into town, get some ice, eat a cheeseburger, because there, there's there's nothing going here. You know, it's really hard to be out in the rain. Uh, we, there, you know, we have some interesting things that have happened in the rain. Um, the rain is a time when a lot of animals feel freer to move around, uh, cause they're, they they do not make as many, they don't, they don't make noticeable sounds. But anyway, we, we were, we were gone for about six hours, um, uh, came back and Rich decided to take a shower.
4: Yeah. So, um, so I've been in here three days and I took a shower. So the, the shower set up here, just to plain a picture, we have uh, a little
0: cabin, up against the hillside, right up against the the, the trees there, and on the backside we've got a water collection system that some of our ingenious members have have rigged up, and so we have a water supply and we can take uh you know cold showers, uh, but they're showers.
4: So I was clean. Uh, I was obviously naked because you don't you don't shower in clothes. Um, and what really annoyed me was there were um, Carolina wrens, alarming. So the time... But why did that annoy you? What about Carolina Wrens? What? They, they were alarmed at my nakedness, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so so I, I grabbed my... I, I, I told myself off, I grabbed my clothes, I pulled my trousers around my ankles, I was pulling them up and as I looked up a br- dark brown, reddy brown, ginger, cinnamon, whatever you ever want to call it, shape, shot up a root from about seven o'clock to about one o'clock or oh, that's where he appeared and disappeared mm-hmm. in front of my eyes i immediately shouted brian and david brandon from some other direction came running and you chased it chased whatever it was up the hill the scary thing was he did not make a sound so um and then i heard you go up there and obviously you were making the sound right. this thing was where, what we were, I think we decided 80 feet away was possibly looking watching with interest and alarm Uh, not judging just saying it was it was observing you i can now say that he was not i am now not a threat um (laughs) so he shot uh, whatever it was shot up the hill silently i i was rather nervous shouted at you two two of you ran up the top of the hill and then over to you
0: yeah so uh we all uh get over here because uh visuals are, are still notable Uh, Brandon and I, we did what we do. What did we do?
2: Well, I had just finished up in the outhouse. I was literally coming back (laughs) from a visit to the outhouse. And this was the time we were all taking care of basic human needs. Right. Correct. (laughs) So I I just finished up in the outhouse and I walked over here and I hear that Rich had seen an animal up on the slope. Mm -hmm. So my immediate reaction when I hear that somebody sees a possible wood ape in an area, I'm going to run towards that direction because there's no other way that I'm going to possibly get a visual or possibly a collection opportunity than going to where the animal was. So you and I, we ran up the slope after it.
0: Yeah, which sucks, but it is what it is. You you it, again, there are instances of this where there are further visuals that can take place. And and uh, so you and I charge up this this uh, sort of little slope in the back. There's a, a, a small ledge up there. And uh, as we sort of as we got to the top uh, of, of the ledge, I'm looking up there now. Um, we were talking back and forth trying to discern exactly where it was because this just happened at this point. And we heard further movement. And and we were talking back and forth when I first heard it. It may have been bipedal crunching kind of sounds. But by the time I got everyone to shut up, it was really just sort of like vague movement in the direction that was further uphill. So you and I
2: kept pushing. We did. We did. We kept pushing to the west because that's the direction that the animal was moving. And as we kept going up the mountain and moving further in its direction, it ran off to the West and we didn't hear it again, but we heard it making a clatter of rocks and noise at least two or three different times.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was clearly moving away, moving generally to the West, uh, sort of Southwest and, and, It seemed to me at the time, and I'm going to come back to this in a second, but it seemed to me almost like it was drawing us up know, it was drawing us away. Uh, That's because it was being so obvious, whatever it was. Um, We didn't ever see anything, but clearly there was an animal, a large animal moving in that direction. So the next day, the next morning, we decided to do a little bit of a, a, a simulation to sort of recreate the event. So Rich... I, so uh, again, just to help people understand the, the setting here, um, to the east of our cabin, there's a little drainage, a little draw coming down the slope. There's another one, sort of its, its twin on the west hand side. Uh, but on this east hand side, um, Rich, when, when you put me over there, uh, describe
4: for the audience, uh, how I compared to what you saw. Um, well, before that, I'd walked walked up to a position where I thought the animal was. Right. And it was immediately, obvious where I thought it was, it, it, it couldn't have been. Right. There was too much green briar. There was too much brush. If that had moved, that animal moved, it could not have not made a sound. Okay. So I then moved back and hit a draw. There was there's rock all the way up the hill mm-hmm. from, say, from about 7 o'clock all the way up to about 1 o'clock, probably up to 12 o'clock. Um, so that probably was the route the animal took mm-hmm. so i called you over you walked up the hill i walked down to the shower and looked in that window that i saw the day before where the animal animal was i moved you up to that position and you were half the size yeah. of what i saw and best, yeah. A best yeah.
0: yeah and what was interesting is is as i was going up the draw of little drainage um Rich kept telling me to move to my left and there was this beautiful, the rocks here are really weird. They're sort of geometric and, and I mean, they, they break off like in in rectangular, like, you know, squarey kind of things. And as, as I'm going up, there's this beautiful ledge, this like nice flat, it's almost like somebody put it there. It's like a little balcony in this, in this drainage. And, and I was hoping cause that would make a lot of sense to me that you were going to put me there and you made me stop right on that ledge. And uh, as as I'm sitting on this ledge, uh, I can look down and there's a nice pretty little window all the way down to the shower. If I was so inclined, I could sit up there un, un, unnoticed perhaps and observe the shower. Uh, and also we noticed, uh, I think it was you who noticed, uh, the, the moss was rubbed off some of the rocks there as if something had been sitting on them. Um, so the, the I'm going to go back to the animal that, that we heard moving away. It is often the case that we encounter pairs of animals in this valley, uh, as often as not, I I don't know the exact numbers, but I would guess half the time we're looking at pairs uh, and when people have visuals or other kinds of encounters. And we've also seen examples of them employ sort of tactical thinking where um, if you are focusing a lot of attention uh, toward what you believe to be an animal, you will hear some distraction uh, from another place. So it, it, it seems plausible to me that what we were seeing is another example of that that the the, the noisy thing going up the hill in the opposite direction of where the cinnamon colored one went was actually doing that on purpose
2: yeah and i tend to believe that because when we were up on the slope it wasn't a continuous motion of movement, mm-hmm. we would move up the slope a little farther and stop to take a breath and then we would hear more clatter right. and then we would move up farther and then we hear more noise. Right. Move up farther, hear more noise. So it right. wasn't like a continuous movement. So it really right. seemed like the closer we got to whatever may have been a second animal, who knows, the closer we got to it, the other one was trying to draw us away.
0: Yeah, And, and it's, that's that's exactly right. It seemed like it was like checking, oh, they stopped. Click, 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 click you know, rush, rush, Russell. oh, here they come again, I can move. Uh, that And that's why I felt like we were being being drawn along, it was it was a really it was really interesting, and then just seeing, um, I was able to take a photo, or Rich, Rich took a photo from his position at the shower to where I was. We put the we put the image onto my iPad, and then Rich drew his memory of the shape, and it was quite a bit larger he than took me.
4: All that window up, and you you were in the middle of it yeah. with two thirds on either side. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very big. That was cool. Visuals are cool. What do you think when you see
0: something that's that big that you know is out here? I mean, how does that change the way that you think about being here and, and doing what we're doing?
4: What surprises me, and it has it, it's done so since last year, is how close these things can get mm. and, and the size they are. Yeah. That was within eighty feet of me. Mm-hmm. The year before, there was one behind my hammock, mm-hmm. and there's just an, it's just a, a number of things that happen in this valley. That show that we think we're the masters of the woods. Right. We're clearly not, no. because we'll bumble around and make noise. These things will walk within a few feet of you, stand or sit down, and you'll, you're you never you're not aware that they're around yeah. until you make that move. You look up, just as it's looking at you, yeah. and it's it's been rumbled and it runs off.
0: So one of the reasons why we like to keep a dark camp, what we call a dark camp at night with, with no lights, uh, no fire, is because we want them to feel as comfortable as possible coming in. Now, that night, Dave, uh, we had heard some motion in sort of the same general area. We were kind of getting the idea that that maybe we were getting a second visitation. You and I heard uh, a vocalization. Can you describe that?
5: Yeah, it was, it was to me. I hear the group talk about huffs, and it was kind of like a huff, a couple of huffs, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, what, what had happened is, is uh, we had heard what we thought was maybe like a mouth pop or something, and you had done the. I did a, a mouth pop. And like, right. Mm-hmm. And right after that, yeah. David, I heard this, <laughs> and then there was a a pause, and a, mm-hmm. but you guys didn't hear that though. No, I no. did not hear it. How close was it? Oh gosh, it was it was right over there. It was basically where where. Drop. Yeah, right in that That's drainage. Yeah, yeah. The next day was Wednesday and we started out that day, uh, going back to the general area where we were investigating the, the, the dark AP shadowy thing. I should come up with a better name than that. But the, the, we, we, we went back over there. Uh, we wanted to see a few more things and, and sort of look at it one more time. And, uh, as we were, as we were there, uh, Brandon, you, we heard something from the direction of the Creek. What did, what
2: did we hear? We heard just general rock displacement—the sounds of rocks hitting rocks.
0: Right. It almost sounded like something striking rocks together, right. and so that's interesting. Uh, rocks generally don't hit each other like that. So we—I picked up a rock and I banged them together. Um, and what? Did, then what did we hear, Rich?
4: You got a response. Yeah. And I thought I heard a light tap as well, mm-hmm. but then again. Light like wood taps at the moment with the amount of nuts falling out of the right. trees. Right. Um, you can't definitively say you had a wood tap.
0: Right, but we did hear a response. Yeah, we did hear a response to the to the clacking, uh, which then made me clack again, and then it shut up. Again, I, I don't understand the code yet. <laughs> I don't know what these mean, uh, but that was that was kind of fun. Uh, but that was pretty much it that that morning. We came back here, and Brendan, you had uh, the idea to do something. Um, quite a bit more than just walking down the road. What did you, what did you want to do that night?
2: Well, last year right around the same time, Daryl and Rich went on this big long journey essentially around the mountains. And they were gone for 3 nights, was it? 2, two nights, 2 nights. Two nights. Yeah. And on the second night they wound up in a drainage that's roughly 1.6 miles west of campus, mm-hmm. if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Yeah. And that night they had experienced a litany of activity and it was the kind of activity that seemed like it was possible. The apes that were there hadn't seen humans Mm -hmm. before. So I thought that was really interesting. And the next night, four of us went back to that same spot Mm -hmm. and all night long from essentially every direction, we were hearing whoops and huffs, single huffs like like that. And mouth pops, whistles, wood knocks,
0: all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, was, it was crazy. It was like some kind sort of like, you know, greatest hits album of, of little ape sounds. It was actually it was the three of us, Rich, Brandon and me and, and, Matt, and Matt Pruitt. So basically it was like a some sort of Apes Among Us. Um, I don't know, reunion tour or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so we had spent that night there and that was the most memorable night of my trip last year. And nobody had gone back to that spot. This year. In fact, nobody had been there since we had been there last year. So, one of the reasons is it's a pain in the ass to get to.
0: You have to, you have to like cross the creek and go through all kinds of gnarly shit.
2: And and you have to carry all of your equipment with you and you have to carry water and it sucks. The hike there sucks. But the end result was worth it that night. So, this week I wanted to try it again. You know, we hadn't gone there in over a year and we had experienced so much unique activity. I thought, let's do it again. You know, there's a good possibility that we're going to have that same thing happen and we got there and we set in and we had been in our hammocks Dave was in his tent for five or six hours and nothing really happened and you guys all fell asleep and around well it was it was I was tired and it was very late (laughs) in my defense understandably you all fell asleep and I was sitting up in my hammock just listening and observing and this was around 1130 at night I heard a tree crash from pretty close range and we actually caught this on your Tascam field recorder and we can edit that into the spot I'd like to and we'll,
0: we'll play that right now that's a tree you guys heard that right you
2: heard that what was it? A tree just fell. Is it? Yep.
4: This direction the
5: south.
2: So after that I had heard a couple more wood knocks from a couple different directions, and at that point Dave got out of his tent and he said that he didn't want to miss anything. And I thought that was interesting because once he got out of his tent, nothing happened for the next hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And I sat there thinking, OK, why are they being quiet now? Why are they not coming around? So I thought I'm going to ask Dave to get back in his tent. Maybe they'll be curious and want to see more of us if they just can't see us. Because the three of us, you and Rich and I, we were all in our hammocks and Dave was out of his tent. He had decided to get out of his tent at that point. And that he had been camp chair I was sitting. Right. So
5: I was just sitting out in the open. You guys are kind of concealed in your tree burritos. Tree burritos.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I asked Dave to get back in a scent just to see what would happen. And like clockwork, within a minute, we heard a really weird vocalization. Yeah,
0: that was super weird. Luckily, I was awake for that. I was not awake for the tree crash. I just slept right through that. Uh, but I was there for that. Um, it was a lovely night, wasn't it? It was beautiful. Stars are out. Then what happened around four o'clock? We all woke so, we all, Oh, yeah. and the forecast, <laughs> the <laughs> forecast, the reason we went there that night was the forecast literally said every hour, zero percent chance of rain, zero percent chance of rain, zero percent chance of rain. So what happened at about four in the morning?
4: So about four o'clock, um, we all woke up for some bizarre reason, looked at the sky and somebody pointed out that the stars had disappeared. And then there was a question that there might be rain. And then we were like, two minutes, the wind yeah. ripped up the valley. So at this point, we were all crashing around, collapsing hammocks.
0: It sounded like a jet engine. It sounded like yeah, a jet
4: yeah. coming down the valley. So it was obvious that we're going to get rain. So we collapsed hammocks. Um, somebody pointed out that I got an Australian Army top in my bag. So we pulled that out, quickly put that up, and then the heavens opened. Yeah. Rain,
2: just like really close lightning. Uh, you guys were huddled. In- yeah, Dave brought a two-person tent with him with the intent of sleeping in it by himself. You know, I, I, ne- I never, I never planned on joining Dave in his two-person tent. Um, but as soon as the storms moved in, I really had no other choice but to huddle in there and try my best to stay dry. Yeah. So it was us in
5: the tent, Brendan, myself, the weapons were on. We sacrificed the air mattress to the, we, we gave the weapons to the, yeah, to we wanted to mattress. make sure the rifles we were them up, dry up out of the water. The weapons had the
2: most comfort yeah. out of all of us. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Did I tell you my butt was wet? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you you did
0: mention a few times that your that your butt got wet. Um, while Rich and I were outside the tent, huddled under this tarp. Uh, the, oh gosh, at one point the wind is blowing so hard and the tarp is like lifting up, and the rain like it's still it's coming in. So we stayed mostly
4: dry. We were mostly dry. I was very surprised. I thought at one point that we were going to get soaked. Yeah. The, the, the amount of rain that was hitting that tarp. I thought we were going to either push it down yeah. or it was get, going to get blown away. Yeah. Uh, but it's amazing what two bungees, a few tent pegs and rocks can do. It, it is. It really is. It's, it's so a, We actually went to sleep. Well, you went to sleep.
0: Oh, okay, I, went to sleep. <laughs> I, I laid there wondering if, um, you know, some kind of viper was going to curl up next to me because it was freezing cold. And I think you said, is, is this what soldiers do? <laughs> <laughs> right. This is my idea of what it is to be a soldier sitting in the mud. Um, actually, it wasn't. It was dry. Um it rained, but the, 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 bad stuff was over, um, probably within an hour and then it just kept raining until, until basically daybreak yeah. at which point we, three hours
2: total. yeah, yeah, I, it was around three hours and that entire time I was huddled in a corner yeah. of the tent, yeah. not comfortable whatsoever. Oh, yeah. And I hadn't slept yeah. at all that night because I was up observing and watching yeah. and hoping to see a wood ape or catch wood ape activity. So I got maybe half hour of sleep. Yeah an hour at best, but it was fitful. So I just sat there playing podcasts on my phone. And at one point while it was raining, I decided to play an old country and Western tune by Marty Robbins just for the sake of entertainment. (laughs) I I think my favorite part was uh, when Rich and I are
0: huddled, and there's like crashing lightning outside and just the thunder is like so loud and there's so much water. And, and Rich looks at me and says, now this is some proper (laughs) (laughs) bigfooting." Like Anyway. Um, the only thing to me that was really interesting, uh, besides the, the, the vocalization, which was cool and, and the tree coming down, um, about quarter to six, I think it was, I started to smell off and on, uh, over the course of about 20 minutes, the, this sort of really distinctive sa- uh, smell that we've that we've um, associated in the valley with apes, uh, what we call like the wet horse smell. It's sort of a a y kind of smell. And I've smelled it before, actually, at the St. Paul Zoo in their gorilla house. Um, a silverback came around the corner and the wind was behind him. And it's the same smell. It's just like a smell of a big animal. This just happens to smell like a gorilla. Um, and it was very nearby because I could smell it in the rain. Um, and then maybe half an hour later, Rich, Yeah,
4: we both, well, I was woken up by you were already awake, but we both immediately sat up following, I can't describe it. Somebody dropped a large boulder yeah. onto the floor. Yeah, uh, you felt, you felt the vibration. Yeah. We both sat up, shone our torches in the wrong direction out into the Creek. And then you said, no, it was behind us. Yeah. But immediately after that, boulder crash or whatever it was, there was heavy movement as it, whatever it was, disappeared.
0: Yeah. Something made a really powerful thud. I don't know if it like stomped its foot. I don't know if it dropped a rock. I don't know how it did it, but the, there was this sort of deep thud that laying on the hard ground with my back on the ground, I could feel the vibration. That's what woke you up. Um, and then there was motion right after it. Um, I'm not going to say it was footfalls or anything. I can't really tell you what it was because, again, it was still raining. Uh, but that was that was pretty close, too. That had to be within like 20 feet of us. And yeah. um, we waited for the sun to come up. Or start to come up. We struck camp and, and came back and were again miserably, horribly soaking wet.
2: <laughs> Cold, wet, tired as okay. <laughs> because nobody Dead tired. Right? Like I, I remember walking back to camp from that place and I just felt like a zombie. Yeah. Like I was in such a tired stupor walking back. And for not
0: the first time in this valley, you, you you're just on these hikes, and it's just like you have to just will yourself to keep going. just keep moving your feet. you'll get there sooner or later. And, and what I know is, you know it's not we can't get there as the crow flies the way we get in there. It's maybe a two mile hike, but it seemed like we were hiking for 10 miles.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Ten miles in the rain over wet rocks. We had to do a few different creek crossings. Oh my gosh, it was so slippery. And it was incredibly slippery, as you say. And all of us were carrying rifles or holding equipment. So it was a a dangerous hike back. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually
0: honestly surprised that nobody fell. I fell twice this week, but not on that, on, on that hike.
2: And I think
4: what made it worse, we had to collect all the light sticks that we'd left yes. out the night before. <laughs> so if we had to extract ourselves in the middle of the night, we could find ourselves. I, I brought a lot of glow sticks from, from work. Don't tell the queen. Um, <laughs> but uh, Her Majesty provided a lot of glow sticks, which we, we snapped and hung in trees. So, of course, you don't want to leave plastic out in the middle of the woods. Yeah. So we had to collect those on the way back. Right. So there's the added pressure. Right. Of, of finding the glow sticks that we'd left the night before.
0: Yeah, actually, when, when we were coming back, I was looking at the map like, oh, we maybe could cut a little time off, but no, we had to go back the same way that we came in because we had to get,
4: get the stupid glow
0: sticks from the Her Majesty's glow sticks had to be collected. Uh, I still have some. I wonder if she would sign them for me. And then we, we uh, were miserable, so we again left the valley and went to the what we call the Kaimichi Biological Research Station.
2: But we had something qu- very significant happen on the way out. Yes, we did. So, on our way out of camp, we were driving up and out of the valley and you saw a animal moving across the road in front of you. Yeah. What what did you see?
0: The the road out of here is is really steep in parts and it's it was very wet obviously and and there's quite a bit of mud and it's sort of a technical drive uh, in, in a 4x4. You guys, the phones were all going off cuz you can start to get reception, so you guys are all looking at your phones for the first time in a couple of days. And I saw on the left side of the road through some trees. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a perfectly clear visual, but uh, on the left hand side of the road through a couple of trees and kind of a not so overgrown window of, 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 you know, underbrush, uh, a gray, dark gray figure moving from right to left. Uh, I saw it, the, the color. And then I just saw sort of like broken up movement um, as it seemed to be picking up speed as it moved away. and, and, the reason why I immediately thought that was a wood ape, even as I was seeing it, was because it was too tall. It wasn't. It was too tall to be anything else. It it, it had a, a verticality to it that that a deer, uh, for example, which we've seen a lot of deer in the valley this this week. Um, a we've deer just walked uh, while we were recording. Right. <laughs> um. Uh. Gosh, that That for you, that could be like the twentieth deer you've seen this yeah. week. Right. Um. It, it couldn't have been that. Uh, it it is in the location that, that we've had other visual sightings actually of gray animals. Um, in fact, if you've listened to our shades of gray episode, uh, this is probably just one more that we can add to that list. Um. So yeah, it was, it was dark gray. Um, when, when, uh, Brandon went over and boboed it for me, you know, basically like stood in, stood in the area. I realized that I, I really, I really didn't see any detail. I can't tell you. I didn't see arm swinging. I didn't see leg scissoring. I didn't see its head, but it was bigger than Brandon because it filled the window and I could see the top of your head just barely.
2: And I'm five foot 10.
0: So it was bigger than that. And it sort of filled it you know, horizontally as well, which you didn't do. Um, So it was a fairly large thing. I stopped the truck. I think I exclaimed something like, what the hell was that? Or something stupid. And uh, we get out and you do what we do. You just take off.
2: Yeah. Brian said that he had seen a gray upright animal crossing the road, or on the other side of the road, as I should say, and my immediate thought was, okay, I'm going to go after it. So, I jump out of the backseat of your truck and immediately just crash into the woods. Keep in mind, i have running on an hour of sleep at this point.
0: Oh, yeah. You're yeah. dead tired, and the woods are wet. There's... Like, if you... I don't remember if it was, I don't think it was raining at that moment, but the woods had been rained on for hours.
2: Yeah. And everything was still dripping. And I was actually still soaked because we decided to break camp and head towards the KBRS, as you had alluded to earlier, and I hadn't changed. So I was still in my overnight wet, stinky clothes. So I jumped out of the truck, burst into the woods, essentially from where you had seen the animal and I chased after it. And I didn't get visual confirmation of what it was, but as I was chasing it down, I could hear a large animal crashing through the brush down the slope.
0: Yeah, it's pretty deep back there. So the, the other side of, of the ridge that the road is on, that draw drops down pretty fast. So it's, it's precarious, but it went right down that, that slope away from you. So, I, and I don't know, I, it, it, I've it i been fortunate enough to have a couple of visuals, and this was clearly not the highest quality visual, but again, I, I've gone through it in my head several times. I've thought about the likely culprits, and I can't get over the fact that it was just too darn tall to be anything else um, than it would ape So, you know, that's, what was that, Thursday? No, Wednesday? Wednesday,
6: Wednesday.
0: Wednesday morning. Yeah, because today's Friday. Um, so, that was pretty exciting. That was cool. No, that was Thursday. It was Thursday. It was Thursday. It was, Thursday. It was, Thursday. It was yesterday. It was yesterday. The days they blend together. Yeah. So that was fun. So this morning, Brendan, you had the idea to uh, to try a slightly different hunting technique, one that I'm not sure has been pulled off before. Why don't you describe what that what you what you tried to do this morning?
2: Well, my thoughts before coming into the valley this week was that I wanted to try to be unpredictable. I wanted to try to break our usual patterns. And our usual patterns are getting up around eight, nine o'clock, having breakfast, sitting around camp, and getting ready to go out later in the day. So I, I had set my alarm clock for Very early in the morning because I wanted to go out and still hunt at the break of dawn because that's not something that anybody here typically does. I didn't have any success. It was still a lovely walk. You know, it was still cool out. The sun wasn't bearing down on me. I wasn't drenched in sweat. It wasn't raining on you. It wasn't raining on me, which is great. I jumped six different deer Right. on my walk yeah. that morning
0: but you, you you also kept hitting snooze on your alarm <laughs> um and rich uh i i i slept through this one but uh what happened after the third the third brother
4: so um brandon's hammock was probably about 10 feet away from where i was in the cabin asleep so i was woke up by uh, i was woken up by brandon's alarm I was then woken up by a second alarm, (laughs) at which point I was then wide awake. I was lying in bed, and then the third alarm went off, and he immediately on the slope behind us to the south heard something akin to... Speech-like vocalization. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard of these. You can wake up in the morning, and your brain's trying to adjust, and it hears things. But I'd been awake for about five or ten minutes when this happened. So that's not that. Something on that hill made a noise. I mean that's that's pretty much the week right there. Dave, how,
0: how do you how do you think the week went? What how how would you how would you describe it?
5: It's been a great week. Been a lot of fun. Um seen a lot of neat things. Mm-hmm. Had a, a lot of good experiences, uh wood ape related and not wood ape related. You know, this valley is just incredible. I mean, all the wildlife in here is is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. You know, the the biodiversity in here is just incredible and so it's neat to see it and it's a joy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to spend a bad time in this valley. Rich, this was your third trip
0: yeah, in?
4: Third time. How does it rank in the top three? It's almost on par, to be honest. Yeah. Within yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first hour of getting here, hearing what we heard, um, seeing that movement and the animal run silently up a hill, mm-hmm. and and just being under the tutelage of you three. Mm. Every day's a school day, and I've learned so much.
0: Wow, that's a really nice thing to say.
4: And also Mr. roadrunner again.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah, so you know, uh, Rich is a birder, and roadrunners on his list of birds to get. And we <laughs> run, run, run right across my truck, right across the road in front of my truck. And Rich was looking at his phone.
4: I was, I was getting annoyed at what was happening in Parliament, and <laughs> and reading a few tweets. And uh, Brian shouted, "Roadrunner, roadrunner!" And roadrunners do what roadrunners do, and ran across the road right very ahead. quickly. Yeah. Uh, what do you think team leader? How did this week go?
2: I always set my expectations really low before I come down here. And I tell myself, okay, if I hear one simple wood knock the entire week that I'm here, I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. I will have experienced wood ape activity. And we've heard so much more than that. I mean, we've had two visuals, we've had faux speech, mimicry. I've heard two tree falls, trees crashing down very near me. I mean, you've heard everything that we've experienced this week already and putting that all in perspective i think our week has been incredible yeah i think it's been extraordinary
0: i set this up as as being both extraordinary and also incredibly mundane because somehow in this place in this valley weeks like this can be Just how they are. This is what it's like, you know. Um, Some folks come in here and absolutely nothing happens, and they are incredibly mundane. And some folks come in here and more than this happens. I've been in and here on weeks where we've had much more significant activity. But I would say this is sort of like right in there, you know. With with if you if you come in here, this is the right place. If you come to the right place and you do the right things and you engage uh, with with your surroundings and and try to put yourself where you believe the target species to be. Uh, you will have you will have interesting experiences, and this has been a week of interesting experiences. Absolutely, so all in all, a good time. So, thanks, guys, for giving our audience this uh, sort of overview of a week in X. Pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, guys, I think it's really great hearing those segments recorded live in the field. And, uh, you know, again, having come from a position of being out on the road and getting those updates in real time, I know you're all kind of exhausted at the end of that week, probably somewhat ready to get home. But, Brandon, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what it was like getting home and trying to integrate back into the normal world.
2: Sure. I want to harken back to my first week in Area X, which I believe was in 2016. We had experienced a litany of activity that week. It was still to this day, the most active week that I've spent in Area X. And I came home and I was actually depressed for a few days because I felt like I could not relate what I had experienced to anybody who hasn't experienced it for themselves. And I just, I didn't know who I could talk to.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny that the the things that matter to quote unquote normal people, even the things that might have mattered to me before, like you get home from an experience where, You've just encountered the unknown and it's become tangible reality. And then all of a sudden, like, you don't care who wins the Masked Singer or American Idol. (laughs) like Those things become so trivial. And so, Brian, you know, you've been doing this for many years since these operations started. You know, what's that process like for you, especially the differences in that process from, let's say, the beginning until till now?
0: Yeah. You know, I can really relate to what Brandon just said, because the uh, I mean, I don't even I've lost count how many times I've gone down there. I'm sure I can go back and do the research, but uh, it's got to be a dozen times. And uh, when you get home, especially after a very active week. Uh, and you want to relate these amazing things that happen to you in this remarkable place and most of the people you're hanging out with just simply can't relate they, they don't want to hear it first of all because it's weird and they don't know what to do with what you say so you're sort of like you have this secret you have this amazing fact that, that you just can't figure out a way to get most people to understand you know the the first time I went down there was for a long weekend the second time. Uh, was during the first of our, uh, you know, summer long operations. That was a very, un- uh, boring week. Actually, not much happened. We heard some really cool vocalizations, but from, uh, an activity standpoint, it was, it was pretty slow. Uh, but that third week, that was really life changing. And so you, it was another one of those situations where I came back and, and there were a few people I could tell. Uh, but for the most part, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't relate these amazing things that had happened and, I also remember from that week very clearly I left early, uh, because it was such a a crazy intense week. I probably left, I think it was a day or two early. I remember driving out and being in my truck by myself. So relieved to be getting out of there and saying to myself that I was never going to go back. I was never (laughs) going back down there, uh, as long as I lived. And, uh, yeah. No, I went back.
1: <laughs> I've been back many times. <laughs> Do you remember how long it took for the interest to rekindle and say, oh, man, I I, I want to go back into I've got to go back kind of a thing?
0: You know, I think if I hadn't have been in the group and been talking to people about it, you know, it, it really is. I, I don't know really how to I've never had anything like this happen to me before, but the coming back into reality, so to speak you know, I, I would, I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, it was, it was summertime. So we would sleep with the windows open and some sort of mundane suburban night noise would happen outside. And I would immediately be sort of like awake and red alert. And, you know, my heart would be pumping and, and I would be, it would take me a minute to figure out where I was and what was happening. And I just, I remember for a long time, probably weeks, if not months, I would have these sort of like, Reoccurrences of feeling like I was back there almost always at night, almost always being woken up, uh, because that's when most of the stuff happened that week was at night. And I, I think it was just sort of continuing to be engaged with the other people in the group and, and having time to sort of talk it out and, and process it. Uh, and, and then talking to some of my, uh, friends sort of like quote unquote in the field. Uh, I remember one of the first conversations I had was, was with, uh, was with Sam, you know, from the old Bigfoot show. And uh, he really helped me uh, sort of like just talk through that and make sense of, of what I'd experienced. But uh, yeah, it took me, it took me a while before I was even considering going back down there uh, and uh, surprise, surprise, here I am. And now I think the biggest difference between the way I approach being there now versus then is that I feel like it's one of those things, you know, they say, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Now I just feel like I go in there and those apes are, you know, whatever, do do whatever you want. Let's go, <laughs> you know, show me, show me yourselves, you, you chickens. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. There's something that happens when you're down there for that long. I mean, I've been doing field research for a long time. So just going out in the field in places, but you know the majority of that would be shorter trips you know like right. weekend trips or right. maybe if you get lucky an extended weekend and so being there for a week you you create a new normal a new baseline and so and especially too because you're there to accomplish something really specific and so right. you have to be hyper vigilant all the time even when you're asleep yeah. which is just not normal you know and so yeah. you get that as a baseline i found like again I've been doing that different parts of the country for years. But after the first visit to Area X and going through that, the first night I was home, I was back in my apartment in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, me and my wife in bed. We have this little chihuahua. The very first night home, he must have moved or rustled or something. And it woke me up. And for about, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds, In the dark, I lay there. (laughs) My first thought was that I was still in camp in the four-season tents, and I I thought I heard movement, and I was trying to listen for more movement, and then I slowly realized, like, oh, yeah, I'm at home in my bed.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, During Persistence Bravo, I could not sleep. There were nights when I might get an hour of sleep, crappy sleep. And that's kind of one of the biggest differences between then and now. Now, like, I will sleep through anything at this point. You know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, we were in there, and uh, it was Alton and Daryl uh, and me in the tent, and something walked up and slapped the tent, and I was laying there, and I could feel the ground moving as whatever it was walked away. I could feel the vibration of this gigantic animal walking, and I was like, oh, that's cool, and I just kind of went back to sleep. It was just like, <laughs> I, and- I don't really know how to explain that, except that I feel like my brain is uh, like, okay, you know, we've we've been here before and, uh, you know,
2: you need your sleep. So
0: (laughs) go back to sleep. That happened in November.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that happened in November, team, during our stay in Monkey Hollow. And we have a audio clip that we shared in the (laughs) previous segment where I was awake and staying vigilant and I heard a tree crashing from not too far away. (laughs) And you can hear David Snoring in the background, and you were sleeping throughout this whole thing, and I'm like, hey, guys, there's a tree. Like, tree? Great. (laughs) Yeah, okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, after a while, after you spend so much time down there like you and I have, you sort of start to get used to this crazy, amazing wood ape activity that anyone else would be super, super excited about. I don't really know how to explain it
0: because obviously it's amazing. You know, when it's happening that it's an, it's amazing and, and our access to this special place and, and is, it's just really something that we should all be thankful for and appreciate. And of course, I, I do appreciate it. There is its own reality down there. And as soon as you, you know, there's this spot on the drive down into the valley where I feel like I cross that and I'm in that place now and the rules have changed and reality is different. And what can happen is not the same as what happens in our world, so to speak. And there's just a, a like your perception of reality changes and what would be absolutely remarkable to you out here in our world uh, becomes just part of the standard operating procedure down there sort of in their world, you know. And I I, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. and And I think that. I don't know how many times you have to go down there before you start to feel this way. I don't know if it's like the fifth trip or the sixth trip or, or what it is. But over time, um, I, I still find it just as amazing and it's just as sort of, you know, mind expanding as it's ever been. But uh, it, it just doesn't it doesn't impact you in the same way because it's it's now part of reality. It's just part of this thing that happens in this part of the world. And uh, yeah, you just you just adjust.
2: These days, I definitely look forward to spending a week in Area X, but by around the fourth or fifth day of a week-long stay, I start thinking about, you know, nice little human amenities like <laughs> actual food and a warm shower and a nice cozy bed to sleep in, and I leave the valley, and I don't feel the need to immediately go back there now. Mm. These days, I can let it lie for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's funny is, um, the first two visits I had there were just, uh, partial weeks, um, because of my, my work, I just didn't have the allotted vacation time left. So I had to take like half a week here and half a week there. So last year I did two full weeks, two different weeks. And, uh, it had been a long time since I'd spend more than, let's say like four or five days at the most consecutively in the field, you know? And, uh, I was like, oh man, this is, you know, eight days, seven nights. Wow. And it goes by so fast where I was like, this felt like a weekend because you're just so busy and you're focused. Again, you're, and you're also that hyper vigilance and being hyper aware that in itself is kind of exhausting. So it's just like, it's like you're, you're engaged in a sport for that many days and it goes by so fast. And each time now that I've done a full week, it's like, it did not feel at all. Like, like, you know, I've had work days that felt longer than that week did. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I totally know what you mean. So in terms of this trip, now that we've heard a lot about, you know, the the follow-up investigation on the Google Earth aerial photos, the visuals that we're seeing there, you know, I, I think, Brian, you made a good point in the roundtable discussion about, you know, this is as exciting as these things are. This is kind of typical of other weeks yeah. in X. So I'd be curious to see not only how it compares, but, you know, are there things that you guys felt like you learned this week are there things that were uh, suspected from previous years that were now confirmed or you know further confirmation of those things or or what do you think you came away with for both of you
2: After I left the valley and sort of didn't really think about it for a few days I started to look back at the notes from our week and sort of putting things together and as I reflected I learned a couple of things and a couple of learned activities that we already know that these wood apes do was more solidly confirmed for me. First of all, the use of sentries. Um, We recorded our roundtable segment that you heard previous to this one on Friday during the day. And that same night, Daryl Collier had planned on coming into the valley to spend some time with us. So Rich and I, we decided to use that to our advantage. And we walked up the rocky goat trail that you have to take to get into area x and we hope that maybe something would trail daryl and follow him into the valley and we would be able to catch sight of one and possibly get a collection opportunity daryl drove in and maybe five minutes prior to us seeing his vehicle both rich and i heard a massive massive wood knock and i have to believe that it was because of the incoming mm-hmm. vehicle that we had heard that at mm-hmm. that time. It seems like more than a coincidence.
0: We've experienced that so many times now. It either you know the wood knock happening immediately before hearing or or, or seeing a vehicle that I, yeah, I, I I just can't be a coincidence at this point. It's happened so many times, countless. I don't even know how many times.
2: Right, and there was another instance during the week where. You guys were farther down the trail than I was. I was actually posted and you were leapfrogging on mm-hmm. the trail behind me. And I could hear on the radio when Rich said that he was going to get up and leave his position. And Rich was hundreds of yards away from me at this point. But as soon as he got off of the radio saying that he was going to get up and leave his position, I heard a wood knock from the top of the mountain. Yeah. And again, that just seems like more than a crazy coincidence to me.
0: Uh, yeah, I think with regard to all of that, for me, it was just further confirmation of sort of the tactical nature of, of these animals and how they, they appear. They seem to, uh, like to keep track of us when we're moving around down there. Uh, I, I would be really curious to know, do they do that to people everywhere? You know, do hikers in the Pacific Northwest completely unaware and, and not familiar with this kind of activity? Are they being tracked like that or, is it something that happens only in X because of the special nature of that place? And, you know, our uh, hypothesis that maybe it's a sort of a, a unique breeding area uh, in the region. Uh, I, I don't know. But but uh, we've we've had those sorts of uh, documented behaviors. We've we've experienced them so many times now. Uh, it, it It's really striking. And. Uh, I th- I think that with regard to you know comparisons to other weeks, it, I think it was definitely above average. Um, it there was some really cool stuff that happened. Um, you know, uh, as I'm sitting here reminiscing, I, I the the hearing somebody who I thought was you, Brandon, walking on the trail, uh, near Rich and I was uh, just one of the more remarkable feats <laughs> or experiences of the week. <laughs> Um, but I'm comparing it to previous times I've been in there, and going back to Persistence Bravo specifically. That was a week where everything changed for for me personally. That you know, these animals went from a you know near certainty, uh, still more like a, a kind of a theoretical um existence to being actual real things with intent and uh and very tactical brains. Um, that was of course, life altering this week, wasn't life altering, but it was, it was definitely memorable and, uh, some, some really cool stuff happened that I'm going to be thinking about for a while.
1: You know what I really enjoyed about it too, is just the variance of strategies that you guys employed there because, uh, you know, obviously the, well, the group's history kind of demonstrates that you know, the things modify their behavior right. in a response to a stimulus. Right. And so it's almost like you're, you've you got an adversary and, uh, you know, you make some good chess moves and, and then he figures them out and right. responds in kind. And right. so it's with your week, you're down there, um, there was the backpacking overnight or into monkey hollow. There's some daytime right. still hunting leapfrogging. There's right. anticipating inbound vehicles. Brandon did some daytime overwatch, you know, the abandoned cabin mm-hmm. thing. So it's almost like you're, you're challenging your opponent to checkers and chess and monopoly and uh, clue, you know, there's playing lots of different games. Cause one of those, we will eventually right. win.
0: And you know, know you know, Matt, uh, that kind of activity on our part is something that you can only, uh, think about when you have years of experience, literally years of experience in an area with the population of animals. And, and what I've perceived, what many of us in the group have perceived is that we settle into a routine and they settle into a routine. You know, they don't leave us alone in there, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily, uh, trying to engage with us all the time, but they definitely are keeping tabs on us. And if we get boring, so do they. So the, the way that we can elicit uh, some sort of contact or some sort of activity on their part, some behavior that we can record and observe, is to do things that are different than what we normally do. Uh, the teams, and I, I'm very happy to say this team was like that. All the teams that I go in there with, uh, we try to be like this. You try to do things that are different, things that you haven't done before, uh, just behaviors that that you don't think they've seen or they haven't seen in a while. Uh, whatever you can do to sort of mix them up and stir them up uh, to to again, we're there to elicit a response. We're there to record behavior and potentially, hopefully someday uh, collect a specimen. So you're not going to do that if you sort of fall into this pattern of waiting for them to perform for you because they will not do that. You have to do something that stimulates them. And so I think um, everything we do, we sort of sit down and, and discuss it and say, well, what can we do today? That is unlike something they have seen or experienced before. How can we get them to screw up and either show themselves inadvertently or come back and try to engage with
2: us? That's exactly what I had planned on doing weeks before we actually went into the valley and I was preparing this trip. I just wanted to change our patterns as much as possible because as we have hypothesized and witnessed, we think they keep an eye on us pretty much at all times. Yeah, And they expect us to go walking up and down the cut path every day. So I like to go off trail. Yeah, I like to get up early in the morning sometimes. I like to change our time patterns. I like to... Hike over two miles to the west into the next drainage over and see what's going on over there. And I think that's a key component to collecting that specimen. I think it's also uh, a hallmark of being uh, an effective team leader. Uh, and I know that on the teams
0: that that I've been responsible for, I will spend a lot of time in the weeks going before them trying to come up with these tactics. You know, exactly as you did, Brandon. Uh, you you just that's your job. Your job is to get. Everyone in there engaged and moving around and doing something because uh, that is how we're going to eventually, you know, bring these animals to light.
1: I think it's important for listeners to understand too that we're talking about the probably the rarest animal in North America. So if, if you're working in a specific area like that, if there is any kind of repeated activity, you're talking about a very small handful of individuals, you know, whatever estimate we might make for the number of apes in the valley, likely the smallest number that we can responsibly generate would be the closest to the accurate one. And so if you think about repeated interactions, it's like you're, you, you might be dealing with the same Few individuals each time. And so, yep. as seasoned as you are with quote unquote apes, you know, you might just be seasoned with a couple and they are every bit as seasoned about us, as, as totally. seasoned to us as we are. And so, you know, I, I think about that a lot looking back at some of these other uh, areas and other cases where there's, say, flaps of activity where you could look at, you know, a, a number of sightings in a, in a brief period of time in a geographically small area, let's say, you know, 20 square miles, and it's not irresponsible to think that might have all been the same one or maybe the same mm-hmm. two. And so mm-hmm. when you're dealing with that, it's like you have to factor in every previous interaction because that individual might have been the you know, the other party that experienced that. And that individual's behavior might have modified specific to what you did yeah. last week or last year or five years ago. And so it's I think what you guys did is critically important to, like you said, changing up the game, doing something that's unpredictable, something that they can't already account for, haven't already experienced and successfully outwitted?
0: You know, my basic assumption is when we're in there that where we are, you know, where our little campsite is and and where our base camp is set up, I don't think that's necessarily in their living room. But I think that because for whatever reason, they feel compelled to observe us and keep a keep tabs on us when we're in there, whether it's because they just want to know where we are because they perceive us to be a threat or they or they are entertained by us or all of the above. I don't know why, uh, but my assumption is that we are not where they are all the time and they're sort of going out of their way to, to keep tabs on us. Then we have to sort of put ourselves in different and unexpected places uh, because that is really the best way to sort of stumble upon activity you know i think that monkey hollow is a good example of that i don't know for a fact to your point i don't know that those are entirely different animals than we interact with on a regular basis but uh the first time that we were in monkey hollow it sure felt that way it sure felt like these guys that we were in and amongst were not used to seeing people and we were you know it was a long hike because the ground is very challenging. But as the crow flies, it wasn't that far from from where our campsite is. So uh, I, I think that, you know, we we really don't understand so much about their social structure, their numbers, where they live, uh, how they live. And, and if, if we don't if we're not constantly sort of probing and trying new things, uh, that we're just not going to
1: learn. And that's why we're there. We're there to learn stuff. And they're probably learning at a very similar pace. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. we've got to out, outpace that for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we have to remember that we're dealing with the brain of a very intelligent primate yeah. here all the while, which makes it all the more challenging when you're in a jungle trying to pursue them.
0: And there was the recent uh, research that, that indicated that Gigantopithecus was related to... Orangutans, which is interesting because I've always thought that wood apes were at least as intelligent as orangutans and orangutans are quite intelligent, uh, maybe the most intelligent of, of the great apes, not counting us. Of course, we have the Internet. We're using it right now. They don't. Uh, but I, I think that there's a there's a lot of parallels, and so that research was very interesting to me and sort of really lines up with, I think, our experiences and, and what we've dealt with down there.
1: Well, intelligence, too, is manifested in so many different ways. Like, yeah. you know, two animals could have basically the same capacity for intelligence, and they manifest it differently. One anecdote I heard um, in, in an anthropology class, this was years ago, but it always stuck with me, is that uh, this comparative analysis of... Uh, manifestations of intelligence between chimpanzees and orangs. And uh, there was a a puzzle box constructed of wood like a big, big kind of simple crude puzzle box and so they would put food in the center of it and construct it in front of the chimps and the chimps would slowly <laughs> figure out how to take it apart uh-huh. and in every instance with the orangs they did, they'd did put the food in the center and build the thing around it and the orang would just smash it in one blow and eat the food and it's like well but <laughs> it's like well who's really smarter in that case right. you know so right. certain, certainly the way that these things manifest intelligence you know is is different and they do have this brute physicality that allows them to elude us as well. And so yeah, we, we've got to outpace them. you know the, the I don't think they're as smart as we are, but they're pretty smart, but you know we're we're trying to outsmart them. And I always try to say, you know, it's like you wouldn't challenge the Incredible Hulk to an arm wrestling match, but you could probably beat him in a game of checkers. And so that's what we've got to do. Is we've got to outsmart <laughs> these things. You
0: had to get the Hulk in here, didn't you? I had to do uh, it. I go back to Persistence Bravo because, again, there's so much of what I what I understand and, and what I think about these animals is was formed that week. But I remember the one night that we were in the cabin and everyone was asleep except me. And there was an ape that uh you know it, it was it was probing it was actually trying to figure out were we awake how close could it get because it seemed to me to desperately want to get close this is the for those of you who have listened to the old Bigfoot show you may have heard this story before but I was in the bunk and I heard uh, uh, a rock hit the roof and then I heard a rock hit the back wall and then I heard footsteps outside and it just kept getting closer and making little noises and doing little probes and I'm laying there thinking and like. Like this thing is, is, is working out a problem in real time. And I'm sort of observing it through my ears. And that was really mind blowing to me that, that, that this wild animal was out there doing things that were clearly, there was an intent. There was a, uh, sort of an experimentation happening. And this animal was trying to work out the problem. How close can I get to this, the structure? Can I actually look in the window and see what's going on in there? And then, of course, trying to figure out, well, why does it want to look in the window? You know, most animals just want to get away, but it's doing something that has nothing to do with what I think about what animals worry about. Animals worry about you know, finding shelter. They worry about finding food. They worry about reproducing. This thing is doing something totally unrelated to all of that. And that was just, you know, what laying there and like feeling my brain open up to what I was experiencing, uh, was, was really, really something. And, and that's that, that, that thought of, these animals and the way that they perceive the world and the way that they sort of probe and 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 experiment on it was, you know, I, that's never really left me. And so I think that that's how they are all the time now, that there's really some intent behind their behavior, that it's not just, you know, some sort of, um, you know, uh, reaction or, or instinct that they're
2: they're actually trying to accomplish something when they're interacting with us. I think there's a prime example of their insatiable curiosity and their inability to leave us alone. On or in the valley, when we were in Monkey Hollow that night, we were I don't know we were there for four or five hours and nothing had really happened. And then Dave he went into his tent, and you and Rich were sleeping in your hammock. So I was also tucked into my hammock, and that's when things started happening. Like the the minute that Dave went back into his tent. We heard a crazy vocalization, yeah. then we started hearing some yep. wood knocks, and that just goes to further illustrate their need yeah. to observe us for whatever reason. Yeah,
0: and I, I really don't get it. Are we like, are we like HBO, <laughs> you know, are we, are we entertaining? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, but yeah, I, that, 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 that is yet another instance of when, you know, uh, back in the old days, we would, we would go into the cabin at night, um, to go to sleep because that's what people do in the middle of the night. And uh, then, you know, they would come up, they would slap the cabin, they would, they would hit the cabin. They would try to get us back out. And and it got to the point where I just feel like that's what they were trying to do. They were just trying to pull us back out because they wanted to look at us some more,
1: you know, to your point about the way that they move into our world that way, like, you know, you've almost like you described being to some degree, you know, the things probing and it's testing and it's seeking boundaries. Uh, right. I was, there's a fascinating book uh, about, uh, siberian tigers and uh one of the things that turned me on to was this uh estonian born baron turned physiologist uh, jacob von uck and uh <laughs> he was basically the father of ethology which is like basically like behavioral ecology and so he mm. had this con- concept called the umwelt and so basically uh this this umwelt is like a a bubble, you could consider it like a bubble of perception that an animal has. And so no two animals really occupy the same umwelt. Like the example that they use in the book is, you know, if a woman's walking her dog down the street, you know, she might be watching for traffic. She might be, uh, you know, looking for, uh, a place to grab some coffee or something like that, where the dog's world is like, what's that smell on the ground? What's that exhaust coming out right. from that hot dog cart, et cetera. And he talks about how predators, specifically uh, in this case, tigers, are able to understand the perceptions and the of of their prey and insert themselves yeah. in it without being detected and how it's almost like abstract thought. And especially they say the more diverse an animal's diet is, especially if they prey upon multiple species, that they are able to, you know, basically slip inside those bubbles of perceptions of these multiple different species and understand where their blind spots are. It's pretty fascinating. And and that's kind of how these animals behave. They are able to operate within our bubbles very often without us even knowing it a lot of the time. Right. Which is not creepy at
2: all. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad they haven't eaten us yet.
1: <laughs> but I think that's a really good, you know,
0: what we're trying to do is we're trying to insert ourselves into their bubbles, right? We're trying to we're trying to appreciate and perceive the world as they do so that we can, uh, you know, get one step ahead of them in what is clearly their domain. I mean, they are masters of that domain. We are not. Uh, so what I like about what you're saying is that, in, a, in, a, in essence, we're trying to do the same thing back to them. And the thing is, we're both, you know, a uh, higher primate. We're both a, a, a smart ape and we're kind of trying to do this to each other. Uh that's that's a really interesting concept I'd not heard of before.
1: Certainly. Yeah. I mean it's difficult because we're we're so uh, bound to our own subjective experiences, right? You know? So it it requires a lot of abstract thought and a lot of imagination to even begin to understand maybe what those things perceive and how oh, we can totally. you know penetrate that bubble, so to speak.
0: You know, I think about this, and and you know, we all have that famous story of 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 the when Alton went down there with some other biologists and they heard the giant wood knock, and the one guy thought it was fireworks or whatever. And I uh, you know, I think that this is a really good example of uh, of a lot of people who. Don't consider these animals to be real or never really thought about them really, uh, ever could be hearing or, or experiencing behavior that they're just writing off as something else because their, their bubble of reality does not include, uh, what they're experiencing. So they just find a way to get rid of it. You know, um, a, a hunter who might see an ape and even our guys who know they're down there and are looking for them oftentimes will confuse apes for people. Well, you could imagine that a hunter who is not expecting to be looking for apes, unless the ape does something that is really super apey, you know, they get a really good look at it. Uh, they might write off a, a fleeting glimpse of one as just another person down there hunting, wearing all black or something bizarre like that, because that's how their brain is going to, you know, interpret the reality of what just happened to them.
1: If you had a multiple choice list in your mind of what could potentially be responsible for, you know, a strange sound or a strange visual for most people, apes just aren't on that list. No, you know, in a a way, it's our job to put that on the list. And who knows what kind of floodgates that will open in terms of, you know, future observation reports or even opening up, you know, uh, past observations that people have been sitting on for so very long.
0: You know, I'm also uh, I'm 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 remembering uh, when Alton first told me about his first visual When he first saw it, it was just this like flash of this large black thing and like his brain went to things like crow, you know, and this Mm -hmm. is this is exactly what we're talking about. You know, Uh, I use the analogy once of your brain is always like like new inputs are coming in and they're like little blocks and it's trying to fit the block into the slot and it's and then you get a block that it's never experienced before. And it doesn't know where to put it. So it just sorts of shove it into a thing that, that makes the most sense, you know, to, 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 okay. Well, it, it looks kind of like a crow. I'm going to say crow, <laughs> even though it's clearly not. Uh, that's, that's very much what it's like, uh, for people who go down there, I think, for the first time and have experiences, uh, e- even if they're expecting it, even if they think they're ready for it. Um, I think that, that, uh, I don't think they are, you know, I, I'm also remembering, uh, a, a guy that, Uh, one of our members brought in for, for a really sort of extended period of time. I think they were down there for like a month and that guy, great big burly firefighter, total man's man. I mean, by the end of the time that he was in there, he was, he was not enjoying life. And I think a lot of it had to do with how his
1: perception of reality was completely altered in the time that he was there. Confrontation with the unknown, the the true legitimate novel, it just doesn't happen for most people in their daily lives. I mean, most people no. live a comfortable life of a common routine, and you know the the strangest unknowns that they'll come up against will be like, you know, am I going to get that promotion? Uh, are we going to, you know, does she really <laughs> love me? Is this really going to happen? And so, when you really encounter the unknown, that, that's you can't get feedback on it either. It's not like you can encounter the thing and now you understand their complete natural history and what it's intended when you encounter right. a, th- a thing that makes you think what is that and is it going to kill me that's a hard thing to to deal with you know
2: <laughs> yeah yeah well i think that that draw the the draw to that mystery that you spoke of that keeps us going back to area x is that these apes exhibit new behaviors that none of us have documented before quite often mm-hmm. And every every time that happens and I'm down there, I'm just amazed. I'm gobsmacked. And it's that very thing, seeing behaviors that possibly nobody else has ever experienced before is what keeps me going back.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, I I think that once you've established for yourself that they are there because you've seen them, uh, smelled them, exchanged rocks with them, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) It is our insatiable curiosity to try to understand as much as we can about the world. I think that's really, I don't know that it's uniquely human, but I, I think that the scale and the ability that we have to perceive and and figure out how the universe works, that's what keeps pulling us in there. I want to know, I am desperate to figure out what their social structure is like. And I don't know why I'm fixated on that, but it's a thing that I think could tell us so much. And I'm, whenever I'm down there, I'm trying to figure out, well, what, what did I just observe over the past week that fits into the known, uh, sort of constructs of, of ape social structure? How can I, are there any new pieces of this puzzle that I can, that I can sort of fit in into my own personal hypothesis about how these apes, you know, live? Because clearly they do have some kind of social structure. They're primates. All primates have social structures of some kind. Uh, It's, it's that kind of like, I just can't, I can't really get, it's like an itch you can't quite get to, you know? I have to go back. I have to have more experiences because if I don't go back, I will never know. And even though in some ways these amazing, incredible things have become almost routine, on the other hand, there's still this tantalizing, it feels like it's right there, but I just can't quite get to it. This tantalizing, need to get one more answer that, that just keeps eluding. It's 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 maddening and also really kind of uh
1: you know inspiring. We are hardwired to forage and the same circuitry yeah. in your in your brain that responds to, you know, food acquisition is the same circuitry that responds to the acquisition of new information. That's why we humans are such good information foragers and this game is almost the most addictive in some ways because the data comes in such little bits and pieces and it's such great intervals of time and it's such great cost of energy yeah. and boots on the ground. And so it's it's so addictive in that because once you get a little bit of it, you're like, oh, I've got to know more. I've got to know more. And one of the things I love about this group so very much is like, for example, what we're doing right now is going to the public. Um, there's There's a real imperative – among the members of the group that inspires me that's like once you know these things it's almost like you have this obligation to inform the public that's interested about it um you know and not not to be on a soapbox about it but you know i've met plenty of people over the years who are just content to kind of sit on what they find or discover or kind of shield themselves right. from, you know, the judgment or ridicule of others. And so they they there's people out there who have collected data and who haven't really disseminated it. And, uh, you know, that doesn't do the apes any good. And it certainly doesn't do the subject any good. And so, you know, I love the fact that not only is this group comprised of, you know, people who are just absolutely foraging for more information, but then we turn around and we share it. And that's fantastic. Yeah.
2: I feel a, a personal responsibility now to keep going down to area X and to keep gathering data and gathering data. Cause really when you think about it, how many people are out there spending months at a time at any given location where they know these animals are like we do. Very few. I I don't think there is anyone. If there is, they haven't come out publicly. Yeah, very few. So we we've got all of this amazing, incredible, information to share. And if we just kept all of it to ourselves, that wouldn't do the species any good at all. Yeah.
0: You know, I I come from a family that has a lot of teachers in it, you know, college professors and things like that. It's not what I do, but I, I, I understand why they do it because I want to share this knowledge and this, this experience and this information. I want to tell people, uh, I think that there are, I think that all of us right now who are, like the three of us are that way. I think that Daryl is like that. I think that the group is sort of, uh, unusually populated with people who have this desire to share the knowledge, share these experiences, because it is something that everyone should know about. And, and, you know, I go back to, to when I came out after that crazy, crazy week down there and felt that I didn't have anybody to tell. Well, I guess in a way doing what we're doing right now is, is, is you know, trying to fix that, trying to, to resolve that problem. I, I don't know that uh we're making a lot of headway, but <laughs> I know that when we collect that specimen, it's going to blow the doors right off of everything.
1: Well, it's been really great having both of you on here. And in fact, it is the first time that the three of us have been on the show simultaneously together, which is kind of funny you know. because it, the whole impetus for me in reaching out for membership, you know, I'd been listening to everything I could get my hands on. In the early days of the internet, which was very little. You know, there were a couple of like little blog talk radio or talk shoe things that were just one-on-one phone conversations, mostly about the weather. And then, you know, Brian had this podcast, you know, the Bigfoot Information Project podcast that was almost like a radio program. It's really well produced and had some fantastic researchers that I really admired, like Rick Knoll on there. And uh, that was my first introduction into the the central Oklahoma Sasquatch related information. And so listening through the Bigfoot show episodes about the group was what really set the hook, and I thought, you know, I, I should really try to apply for membership, and this sounds like something I want to be a part of. So, I, I know I'm here essentially because of that, so I'm really grateful for the opportunity for all of us to be on this call together.
2: Yeah, and you are not alone in that, Matt. It was actually, Brian is the reason that I'm here talking to everybody now. When I heard the old Bigfoot show podcasts that were based around Area X, they drew me in so much, and I felt like I just had to be a part of it. I had to find out what was going on there, and I had to find out who these people were who were telling these incredible stories. So I sent Brian a message on social media, and he was very gracious and very kind, and he responded to all of my messages. He invited me to the NAWAC member retreat down in Oklahoma, and this was before he ever even met me in person. So I I have to really thank you, Brian, for being gracious about all of this and for presenting all of these podcasts and everything that you're doing for the work. We've gained a lot of really great info and I've made a really great friend out of it as well. So thank you. Yeah, no, I that means a lot.
0: And, uh, you know, I I think this is part of this is going back to what I was saying before. I, I really want to share. I've always wanted to share. I think everything I've ever done in relation to this field of of interest this field of study has been about trying to share information um and uh so there's sort of that deep-seated desire to try to tell as many people as possible about what we've what we've learned and what we've experienced but also there's sort of a selfish part in that by drawing you guys in you know like moths do a flame i get to meet great new people i get to have new friends and people who i can do things like this with and so uh i'm just it, it is always heartwarming to me to hear people either brought into the group or or brought into this this field of interest because of the, the previous things that I've done. But uh, also, uh, this has obviously been rewarding for me as well, because like I said, I get to hang out in the woods with people like you and, and do shows like this. And uh, that's that means a lot to me as well.
1: Well speaking of those old Bigfoot show episodes, you know some of those were recorded on site in Area X or at the members retreats with yeah. all of the you know members that are still uh, active in the organization to this day. So one of the things we've talked about uh, because those are you know titled under a different podcast and they're kind of disseminated in a long line of multiple podcasts. So for the listening pleasure of our listeners rather than having to go find those and dig them up, we're going to reissue a few of those uh a- a title them as from the archive so probably next month you'll be hearing one of those episodes. I think Brandon, you were hoping to uh, release
2: that as a holiday treat, correct? Correct. In the meantime, before we release that episode, you can find our information if you so please at woodape.org. You can also find us on Facebook at North American Woodape Conservancy and I would like to ask of all of you please to rate and review our show. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, it helps us out a lot. It really grows our listenership. It grows our audience. And I cannot thank you enough for supporting everything that we do.